since international year turned around a growth yearly profit of three and a half billion dollars. Three and a half billion dollars, right? I was like, listen, I've been doing the grinds every day for months. <laughs> like, like, it is not, it is not that root of a job as you think it is. And 50 pounds is not that heavy when you carry it every day, my friend. Like, okay, <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> the International came to us and asked us to merge with the district council across the river. So that brought 2,500 new members uh, to us and you know, you have to represent them just like I've represented the people for the last 20 years ago. Then the pandemic hit, and I always call the pandemic. It was like a code 99. The patient's heart stopped, all the attention needs to be put towards that. I like that you are try, like doing your best to attend events. Holy cow, that's, that's awesome. You're going above and beyond to getting to know students and families. You're listening to the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly Produced by the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Find out more at laborradionetwork.org. I'm Chris Garlock. On today's show, we'll hear about work stop actions. That's what they call strikes in Australia at B&D Doors in Victoria on the Stick Together podcast. Then on the UFCW 3000 podcast, meat cutter Amber Wise runs for office. We'll meet Fran McLaughlin, the new business manager at Painters District Council 21 in Philadelphia on The Labor Show, and Labor Radio reports on the global crisis in nursing. In our final segment, a school counselor discusses how she helps newly arrived families on OEA Grow, the podcast from the Oregon Education Association. That's all ahead on this week's edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Here's the show. Welcome, everybody, to Stick Together, and I'm your host, James Brennan. Thanks a lot for tuning in. On this week's show, I'm going to be speaking with Tony Mavramatis, who is the Victorian Secretary of the AMWU, the Australian Manufacturers Workers Union. And we're going to be talking and listening to a little bit of some stop work actions that have been happening um, with support from the AMWU with AMWU members and those workers uh, have stopped work now for a couple of weeks at time of recording and we're going to hear a little bit about uh, what's been happening and also some audio from the actions themselves from Tony and a couple of other workers speaking there so enjoy the show. It's interesting to know those facts, right? The other facts are because I'm hearing, you know, B&D are owned by Dulux, right? And B&D, I'm getting told, are getting told by Dulux, you're only getting 3% per year. That's all you're going to get, right? So let's have a listen on what Dulux make, right? Dulux International Year turned around a growth a growth yearly profit of three three and a half billion dollars. Three and a half billion dollars right and that's a 68 percent growth in one year we heard a little bit from uh the stop work actions that uh tony is speaking about and this is the interview with him to talk a little bit more about what's happening for the workers uh from bnd doors and their stop work actions that have been going now for a couple of weeks i've um yeah really excited to hear about the workers at the B&D doors and I know they've been engaged in stop work action now for over two weeks 
Can you tell listeners, before we kind of get into the details of the action, can you tell us a little bit about the kind of work that happens at the site there and, you know, across some of the other sites there that workers from the AMW are involved in? Yeah, there's, a, there's about uh, 50 workers that work at the kill site, site in Victoria. Um, what they do, what they make, they manufacture roller doors. Um, um, and, and it's a little bit complex about, you know, the work that gets done in there. You'll have welding going on, you'll have um, some fabrication going on, cutting, pressing, um, all that sort of work when you think about a, a roller door and how it works. Um, whether it's um, uh, manually opening roller door or, or electric opening roller door um, with a motor on it, um, these are the sort of work that these guys uh, carry out in the kill site. site. Um, like I said, 50, 50 workers out there. Um, um, it, is, it is not uncommon of today's age, and it's disappointing what's going on um, here. Um, these workers, they're not highly paid workers, um, but it, it really has nothing to do with what people are getting paid. It's really about trying to maintain people's standing of living. Mm-hmm. And over the last six to nine years, these workers have been receiving um, what what people call the CPI increases. You know, minimum wage increases of around two to two and a half percent per year. Um, the company, you know, used to run the hard line about about the CPI, and reluctantly workers accepted that for the last nine years, I guess. Um, and now that we have a cost of living of anywhere between 6 and 8%, um, the company refuses to recognise that. Hence, hence why workers are being, are being felt disrespectful. Um, you know, where is the reward here? Um, when things are tough, the workers always seem to stop it, um, especially now, this day and age, um, with the cost of living so high, if they don't get a wage increase of at least 6%, they actually go backwards. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our local USCW 3000 podcast. We are recording in our Seattle office today, and today with me, I have Amber Wise, a fellow union member who is going to educate us on everything she's been doing and tell us about all of the things that she has been up to because she is accomplishing a lot right now. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Um, so my name is Amber Wise. I work at PCC over in Redmond, and I have been with this union for almost three years now. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. Um, I work in the meat department. I started over in the deli, um, and when I started, it was like really after the pandemic. Um, my husband had just got into business for himself. I had just left my job as like a, I worked childcare for a very long time and was feeling pretty unsupported. But so yeah. moved there, kind of just like looking for benefits, really. And we knew that PCC had really good benefits, and since my husband wasn't getting them, kind of ended up there. Yeah. Yeah. It was a part-time position because that's all I needed for benefits. And then I got to like hang out with my kids. And then over the winter, I went and helped out in the meat department and it was insane. And I was like, I 
love this. <laughs> I love this. So insane, but insanely awesome. Yeah, yeah. It was just like really, really busy. Everybody had really high energy. They were very enthusiastic, um, very passionate about what they were doing. Then there's two women that work there, Lillian and Anna, and they're both these tiny powerhouse women. And I was like, yes. I was like, I love that. Um, yeah. And it was actually Anna who kept pushing me. She was like, you could come over here and cut me too. You could, you could do it. And I was like, mm-hmm. that'd be kind of cool. And then January, they opened up an apprenticeship. So I lied and I'm doing the apprenticeship. I graduate actually this January. Oh, you so, graduate soon. Yeah, I graduate really soon. Congratulations. Of, thank you. It's kind of sad, but also, you know, exciting. I know a lot of people can kind of have the misconception that a meat department or a meat apprenticeship program is for men. And it's not. It's for women, too. Like, we cook, too. Yeah. We cook, too. We barbecue, too. We eat our food. I think that that also comes from, like, this, you know, weird misconception that, like, men are, I mean, and they are, right, physically stronger than women. But on the other side of that, like, it's it's not like I'm throwing around, like, a 300-pound, you know, Oh, so Beef, you don't like right? chuck it half a cow over your shoulder and just walk down the, <laughs> it, chop it down on the counter, chop it up? <laughs> Actually, we have a bunch just hanging in the cooler and I just pick them up. It's totally fine. <laughs> but I mean, and, and even things that are too heavy, right? Like you kind of figure out like little ways to get around it. I mean, carts work really well. Uh, yeah. When Team I first started, it. I I was, you know, as an apprentice, you do the grinds a lot. And sometimes yeah. you're doing like... 50 million pounds of grinds and you know I'm sitting there with all my 50 pound tubs and one of the journeymen comes in and we didn't really work all that frequently together at the time and he was Mm -hmm. like they're having you do the grinds and grinds just to correct me if I'm wrong because I I work in healthcare no No, you're perfectly fine is that where you're just grinding up meat through a grinding machine for like sausage and burgers and things uh yeah for like ground beef um so PCC does a lot of their own ground ground beef yeah which is awesome so that is awesome yeah yeah it's great so he comes in and he was like, they're having you do, do the grinds, do the ground beef. Yeah. He goes, well, that's kind of a brute job, isn't it? I was like, listen, I've been doing the grinds every day for months. <laughs> like, like, it is not, it is not that brute of a job as you think it is. And 50 pounds is not that heavy when you carry it every day, my friend. Like, okay, <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> what is your favorite part about your job? Um, my favorite part of the job is probably the connections you can make with people. I mean, it's really interesting how much people will share with you if you just listen. Uh, customers, like, you know, um, other apprentices, journeymen, I yeah. most certainly learned to just kind of stop talking and listen. Everyone's got a different perspective. Everyone has kind of a different worry. Um, you know, customers will come up and they'll be genuinely concerned about like the well-being of the animals, right? Mm-hmm. So, and I'm sure you start getting regulars, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, we have a lot of regulars, um, and that's also fun too. I mean, like specific couple I can think of. I when I started working there, they were you know just about to get married, Aww. and now they've got this beautiful little boy. And it's just cool to watch the family expand and to make those connections and to talk to them and, you know, other customers that we have too, where it's like, wow, this, yeah, it is a community, right? Yeah. And they obviously shop there and come and talk to us too, because they enjoy that experience as well. 
Thank you so much for meeting with me and making time out of your extremely busy <laughs> schedule. I appreciate it so much. Thank you for having me. This was fun. Yes. If you have any questions or you want to know more about our union, go to our website at ufcw3000.org. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and thank you for listening. Have a fabulous day. Welcome in, everyone, to another edition of The Labor Show with J-Doc and Krause. Great to be where we are today, J-Doc, and great to bring our listening audience on this day uh, an inside look at DC-21. I couldn't be more excited um, to, to, to bring, uh, you know, obviously, the leadership, longtime leader, friend, uh, Joe Ashdow, longtime uh, business manager of District Council 21, International Union of Painters and Allied Trades, and, of course, Fran McLaughlin, who is the uh, new business manager, uh, who, who, who took over for Joe here at DC 21. Uh, and we're going to bring in Aaron O'Brien uh, to talk about the apprentice program. We represent, you know, basically four different crafts. So we have painters, two types of painters, commercial and industrial. We have uh, tribal finishers, we have glazers, and we have wall covers. And then we have a couple smaller ancillary groups. As an example, the stadium workers at Citizens Bank Park tonight. Uh, when, we, we, uh, when we beat the when uh, we beat the Braves right, tonight, and yeah. when you buy your program, it's from one of our members. Awesome! <laughs> so, I didn't know that. That's yes. fantastic. <clears throat> but so we're a little unique, and it was a little more of a challenge when we were asked to fully affiliate. In the we were always under the same umbrella from the international, but in the nineties, they at a convention, they said we got to get everybody in one roof working together and you know it was kind of it, 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 I, listen you know I, I was an iron worker you know i mean on a job for 20 years right I, and i can only imagine what the new uh, like what, what changes you know it, literally you know it's difficult especially when, th- when when men and women from in the same union for their whole career some 30 40 years and you're asking them to kind of in a sense grow right. and that, and but you know that's what that's what labor is all about that's exactly right we uh we laugh about it now, but, you know, there was about four different painters, union halls in the area, in the Delaware Valley. There was a drywall union hall, and there was a glazer hall. Right. So the painters in the drywall said, we're going we're to move you into the glazer hall um, because that's the newest building. And the painters in drywall were like, hey, my father, my uncle, my grandfather built this building, and I got to move into the glazer's hall. That's not right. And then the glazers were like, wait a minute, we got to take down the right. glazer sign, and they're moving in. You know, so there was a lot of uh, people that weren't happy. But right. what we've come to learn, and sometimes in, the, in a difficult way, is that resistance to change is a dead-end street. And once we put everybody together and combine the uh, resources, we have a wonderful training program that Franny and uh, Aaron's going to talk about. We were the first training, building trades training program in the country to be able to confer associate's degrees to our apprentices. Wow. First one. And through a lot of hard work, combined effort, everybody, you know, leaning in and pulling together. And now there's, uh, what is it, maybe 16, 18 programs now that are certified by the uh, U.S. Department of Education. Wow, Joe. Talk about, you know, you had brought some, uh, you know, uh, members from Jersey in, 2,500 if you would. Yeah. So last year, uh, before Joe left, it was probably in June, um, the International came to us and asked us to merge with the district council across the river. They actually got absorbed into district council 21. So that brought 2,500 new members uh, to us. And, you know, you have to represent them just like I've represented the people for the last 20 years. There's no distinction between that. So we brought them in and, and, you know, we've been busy now merging funds, health funds, the training fund had to merge that Aaron runs. uh, And, 
you know, buildings. We, we opened a, a building in Boardwalk Hall in Atlantic City. We have a, we have a, a building down there with offices and training center. Uh, we have Where's one- your jurisdiction now that you brought the, the, the Jersey local in? So it's, it's the eastern half of Pennsylvania, the entire state of Delaware, and the entire state of New Jersey. Wow. So, um, you know, we, we opened the office there. We had one in Brick that was District Council 711's former office, and also one in Springfield, which is a couple minutes outside Newark. And, um, you know, we had to absorb all the agents in. We had to kind of bring them in and embrace them. I mean, they kind of were probably hurting a little bit that, you know, they got merged in. Sure. But we, we, it, it was very important to Joe and I to make sure that they felt at home and they knew they had a resource in us to do their jobs. So I want to thank Franny. I want to thank Joe Ashdow and Aaron and, and, every, and all the members of DC21 for allowing us to be in your home today. It's been an awesome show. Joe Krause? That's going to do it for this edition of The Labor Show with J. Doc and Krause. Again, special thanks to Joe Ashdale, special thanks to Fran McLaughlin, and special thanks to Aaron O'Brien Hoffman. Job uh, well done by you on behalf of my partner, J. Doc, and all of our listeners tuning in to this special on DC21. I'm Joe Krause. See you next time, everybody. This is Solidarity News on Radio Labor. This is a Radio Labor report recorded on Friday, October 13th, 2023. I'm Mark Belanger. There is a crisis in nursing all around the world with understaffing, a lack of respect for family life issues, and increasingly problems caused by the climate crisis. Recently, Global Nurses United held a conference in San Francisco to discuss what can be done. One of the nurses who attended the conference was Linda Silas. Ms. Silas is the president of the Canadian Federation of Nurses Unions. The CFNU has about 250,000 nurses in Canada. I asked her what Global Nurses United was and what it does. About 10 years ago, we started the GNU Global Nurses United to bring working nurses together toward uh, promoting public health or Medicare for all, to promote nurse patient ratios, so safe staffing, and work together on the climate crisis. Right now, we are representing nurses in 35 countries, which just over 3 million. You have said that there is a global crisis in nursing. What does this crisis consist of? We knew way before the pandemic that we were going to hit a nursing shortage. And then the pandemic hit, and I always call the pandemic, it was like a code 99. The patient's heart stopped, all the attention needed to be put towards that, and we did. And now the situation is worse than during the pandemic because we're in a shortage, but we're also in a shortage of two prongs. When assured is we don't have enough educated and trained nurses across the country and across the globe, but we also have a shortage of nurses willing to work full-time, even part-time hours because of the working condition. You mentioned internationally trained nurses like from the Philippines. What should be Canada's policy about internationally trained nurses? The first policy is ethical recruitment, and we passed a statement at GNU on how nurses unions across the world are going to support ethical recruitment. So it's a give and take. If I go and recruit nurses in your country, I have to make sure the numbers are safe for you and for us, but also that I give back to your country. 
And that we're not seeing a lot of, we're seeing, for example, Canada going to the Philippines, India, and, and other countries, a lot of the countries in Africa too, where we go and recruit their nurses, but leave them with nothing. Hello, everybody. Uh, for those of you who has listened to OEA Grow podcast, welcome back. For those of you who has not listened to our OEA Grow podcast, so glad that you are joining us for our podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Sakura Hamada, and this season is about supporting our newly arrived students. And today we have our lovely guest, Jocelyn Morales, joining us. So, Jocelyn, if you don't mind introducing yourself. Hi, everyone listening. Uh, first off, I want to thank Sakura for inviting me to be a part of this segment. My name is Jocelyn Morales, and I'm a school counselor. I'm going into my fourth year, and I'm really happy to be a guest on here today. Yay, awesome. Well, well welcome, Jocelyn. So, Jocelyn, so um, you mentioned that you're a school counselor, and Oh my goodness, what a coincidence. I'm also a counselor too. <laughs> so, but you and I both know, like I know what you do as a counselor, have general understanding, but if you don't mind sharing the uh, the listeners, what you do as a school counselors and how you've been supporting your newly arrived students. Yeah, of course. Well, before I get started and sharing a little bit about that, um, I'd like to share about myself. I am a daughter of Mexican immigrants who... Um, came to the United States seeking better opportunities, and I'd like to thank them um, because they've been some of my greatest teachers. I was born in Southern California, and I moved to Oregon when I was in middle school, um, and it was quite a change for me. School was different here in Oregon. Um, my parents had a harder time being able to communicate with staff at the school I mm -hmm. attended and, you know, the language barrier that was there. Um, and I started noticing and feeling the inequities that existed um, at that age. And then once I got to high school, um, my experiences were also different compared to my peers. I was an interpreter for school conferences. I mentored middle school students. And so um, just being able to help students and families during that time really drew me into wanting to be a part of um, becoming a teacher. And so I became a teacher. Then I I went in, um, and did Fulbright, the Fulbright experience where I taught English in Mexico and that really drew me into my culture, um, learning wow. more about it. And I came back to Oregon um, and attended grad school. And so now I'm a school counselor. This is my fourth year and I, I can't believe I'm going into my fourth year. So I'm just uh, curious how you, Jocelyn, um, kind of become familiarize yourself with other cultures that comes into your uh, comes into your school or office like how do you actually get to know them yeah well I first off like start by um getting to know the student and in our conversation um it, it always comes up where students uh, are able to share about themselves you know and um and that really helps me and I just draw from there and um I I you know, do also some of my research, learn more about cultures, because I think for me, when I was um, going, growing up, uh, I never really got that from, from my teachers, like wanting to get to know me more about like, what was my, what were my traditions? And so, um, mm -hmm. you know, there's different, different um, events that happen. And so if I'm able to attend, get to know, know more about it, that's what 
I like to do. And, um, and I think it's important because in the field, you know, there's, um, we're always learning. There's always like Mm -hmm. areas of growth. And so I try to stay, um, learning and, and, um, really getting to know the students I'm serving, the families I'm serving. Yeah, 100%. Because we as educators, we constantly have to learn. And, you know, there's so like, we don't know what we don't know, right? Like, there's so many things that we are not aware of. And so we're constantly learning about new things. And I like that you are like doing your best to attend events. Holy cow, that's that's awesome. You're going above and beyond to getting to know students and families and their coaches, whatnot. Thank you so much, Jocelyn, for your time. We really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1825. That was the day the construction of the Erie Canal was completed. The 363-mile canal connected the Atlantic Ocean to the Great Lakes by way of the Hudson River. The project was started in 1817. Thousands of workers toiled on the project. Many German immigrants worked as stonemasons on the project, while immigrants from Northern Ireland worked as general laborers. First, they had to clear the thick growth of forest that covered much of the planned canal path. And then they had to dig the canal by hand with picks and shovels. Once dug, they had to line the canal with stones and clay and construct the locks. For this backbreaking work, they received between 30 and 50 cents per day. There were many dangers working on the canal. Laborers had to struggle through knee-deep mud as the canal crossed the boggy ground of the Montezuma Swamp west of Syracuse, New York. Hundreds of workers contracted malaria. They called the illness swamp fever. It is uncertain, however, how many workers died building the canal. Some estimates are as high as 1,000 workers. Many who died were buried in unmarked graves along the waterway. Like the stories of many working people, their names Names are lost to history. I got a mule and a name is Sam. Fifteen miles on the Erica now. She's a good old worker and a good old pal. Fifteen miles on the Erica now. Labor History and Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryandtwo.com. We know every inch of the way. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Just a small sample of the amazing programs aired last week on more than 200 Labor Radio and Podcast shows. They're all part of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, shows that focus on working people's issues and concerns. We've got links to all the network shows at laborradionetwork.org. You can also find them. Use the hashtag laborradiopod on Twitter, X, whatever they call it, Facebook, and Instagram. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, edited this week by Patrick Dixon. I produce the show and our social media guru, as always and forever, is Mr. Harold Phillips. For the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this has been Chris Garlock urging you 
to stay active, and of course, stay tuned to your local labor radio podcast show. See you next week.